If you would now turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, the sermon will be on verses 9 through 11, but I will start from the beginning and read verses 1 through 11. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. May the Lord bless the reading and preaching of his holy word. As we look at our passage this morning, it would be good to know where we are and what is going on in the background. We find ourselves in the wilderness by the River Jordan. It is between the years uh, 26 and 29 AD, and it is the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, as Israel is being ruled by the Roman Empire. You have Pontius Pilate as governor of Judea in the south, and two brothers in the north, Herod governing Galilee, and Philip governing Caesarea. So what this means is you have the people of God surrounded by a culture and a government That is not their own. There is widespread immorality on every level, socially, culturally, and politically. The Roman Empire is known to be not only one of the most successful societies in human history, but also one of the most corrupt societies in human history. The politicians were corrupt. The people were corrupt, and so the culture was corrupt. 
The people of God were surrounded by every type of vice imaginable. From sexual immorality, idolatry, superstition, sorcery, the oppression of the poor, slavery of the worst kind, the decay of the family structure and the decay of marriage, and what was also common were abortions. All religions were believed to be considered equally true. But all people were mandated to worship the emperor and the state. So, they persecuted the people of God. They persecuted the people of God who refused to bow the knee. And the people of God were driven to the fringes of society. This all sounds much too familiar, doesn't it? It sounds much like today, because that is where we are today. There is nothing new under the sun. We are in a modern-day Roman Empire that is growing in ungodliness and purposely opposing God. And one of the reasons why Israel was in the state that they were in was because of their own sin. And eventually the surrounding corruption infiltrates the people of God. And it infiltrates even the Jewish leadership. Israel was supposed to be the light of the world. And yet her leaders will be used as instruments of Roman tyranny. As we will see throughout this letter. So it is in this context that all of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to John to be baptized. It is in this context that the Lord, God Almighty, will make His appearance. Because the prophecy, as it is read in verses 2 and 3, not only speaks of the coming of the messenger of the Lord, but it also speaks of the coming of Of the Lord God Himself, and that the Lord will make an appearance. And this is what Israel has been longing for. This is what they have been waiting for all this time. Even though the Messiah will not live up to their expectations. But this is what they have been waiting for. They have been waiting for the coming of God. So that he may rule and reign through the Messiah. So we hear the voice cry in Isaiah. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And it says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together. This is where we find ourselves in this passage. As the glory of the Lord appears before John's eyes and before the rest of the crowd that was being baptized. The mightier one has come. As the Apostle John said, that the Word who is God became flesh and dwelt among us. Speaking of the way the tabernacle or the moving temple dwelt with Israel in the wilderness. Symbolizing God's 
presence with his people. And he says, we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father. Full of grace and truth. And not only do they see the glory of the Lord when they see Jesus. But they will see his glory in all that he came to do. And all that he came to accomplish for his people. We find ourselves in the drama that is unfolding at the river Jordan. The great and awesome day of the Lord has come. As the savior and judge of the world is about to enter the scene. And meet with his people once again in the wilderness. And he will lead them out toward Jerusalem, where he will provide the way of salvation through his death and resurrection, that is, the destruction and rebuilding of the true temple of God. This moving tabernacle, carrying the glory of the Lord, that is Jesus, has now come to the wilderness to be baptized by John in the Jordan, to be anointed, and then we hear a declaration. Of who he is. But first. Let us see. His baptism in verse 9. He comes to the same river. Jordan that Israel. Crossed to get to the promised land. Led by Joshua. Who ironically shares the same. Hebrew name with Jesus. And there is irony. All over this text. One is that. He is coming from Nazareth. Of Galilee, which would have meant that he would have been a stranger in this crowd of Jews and Judeans. And from the history between the the north, that is Galilee, and the south, uh, Jerusalem and Judea, is that they didn't get along very much. In fact, there was even distrust in their uh, religious practices. Not only that, but even more so, if you came from Nazareth, you were considered even more irrelevant, even to other uh, Galileans. And no one in that crowd would have cared to know you. So what the people saw when Jesus came to the waters of the Jordan was an insignificant and unknown character whom they would have brushed aside on any normal day. But on this day, It would have been awkward for them to see as they look on at John baptizing an outsider. It would have left them in either wonder, disgust, or they would have just shrugged their shoulders in carelessness. But the irony is deeper than him being from another town. He was singled out as the one Galilean among many Judeans. But that's not all. It is also about who he was as a person. He is set apart as one among many because he is unique. And the whole purpose of John the Baptist's existence was here before his face and his message is now being confirmed. See, the significance of John the Baptist's ministry is not about all the people he came to baptize. But his significance was truly about the one 
out of the many that he came to baptize. This one unique individual who came from out of town, who would have struck, stuck out in a crowd of Judeans. And the irony is deeper as we ask, why has Jesus, this unique individual, come to be baptized? He is the mighty one who John says he is not worthy to untie the straps of his sandals. And he is the one who comes to be baptized. Now this marks the beginning of Jesus' public ministry and life. Just like when we have a new president, this would have been called his inauguration as the Messiah in his priestly role. And part of his ministry is that he fulfills the entire law. Not just the Ten Commandments, not not just the Mosaic Law, but He came to fulfill all of the Old Testament. And now it is being fulfilled publicly in Jesus Christ. This is why John asked, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? The Supreme Baptizer is going to be baptized by a servant? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus always obeyed the law privately, but now he fulfills all of what Scripture has taught publicly and submits to baptism just as we are called to submit to baptism. See, He didn't only come to die for us. For Christians, when we speak of what He did for us, we often only refer to the cross. But He also came to live for us. He came to be baptized for us. The irony here is that He who knew no sin became sin for us. Here we see Jesus bound up with sinners and stands where sinners should stand. He identifies himself with the sins of his people when he is baptized. Because here John is calling sinners to repent and be baptized. Because baptism is reserved for sinners. Baptism symbolizes Forgiveness and cleansing of sin. What did Jesus have to repent of? What sins did he need to be cleansed of? He was the only one in the crowd who was sinless. Yet he associated himself with the many and was baptized. The clean Lamb of God without blemish, stepped into the same water with filthy sinners. He was the only one who was guiltless, yet he was baptized with the guilty. He was baptized not for his own salvation, but for ours. 
He wasn't baptized for his own guilt, but for ours. He wasn't baptized to escape the wrath of God, but to save us from the wrath of God as the one who takes the place of the many. This is what his ministry was all about. He is the Savior who associates himself with those he came to save. He had to submit all rites and practices that we are called to submit to so that he can bear the entire person, the entire man, and all of his sin. He lived his entire life from the moment he was born to a full-grown man as obedient to his Father's will so that he can atone for every moment of our entire lives. So that he could do what Adam could not do. So that he could do what we cannot do. His baptism not only symbolizes forgiveness and the removal of sin, that is, our sin, but it also symbolizes his death. This is why Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So that we may be raised from death like him and be with him. So what his baptism symbolizes most of all is God's amazing grace to us that we do not deserve. So secondly, we see as he comes out of the water, immediately what does he see? It says Jesus sees something similar to what Ezekiel sees when he saw visions of God. Jesus sees the heavens being torn open. And this signals that a supernatural act of God is about to take place. And this act is the act of anointing. So not only does he get baptized here, now he is being anointed or set apart for a specific task. And so he sees the Spirit descending on him like a dove. We see throughout Scripture, God anoints Many for, for specific tasks. Prophets, priests, and kings. But this anointing and commission only Jesus can perform. As he is all three. Prophet, priest, and king. Because he has the unlimited power to do so. Here he is being equipped with the spirit. In order to baptize with the spirit. And recreate this fallen world. The Spirit descends on him much like when the Spirit hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis 1. When God was creating all things. So what God is saying through this act, the supernatural act, is that here I will begin again with Jesus. Man has failed before. Man is failing now. But through this man, I will make all things new. Hence why the Spirit is said to look like a dove. 
Because the dove is symbolic for new creation and peace with God. This means that in Jesus, God's judgment has come to an end. Once the dove rested upon him. In Jesus, there is peace with God. In Jesus, you can have peace with God. This is important for us to know today. Because where do we find peace? Where do we find the peace of God in the world of sin and unrest? Humanity is in decay and there's no order. We are suffering in our own lives because of our own decisions or the decisions of others. Poverty is increasing. The suicide rate is increasing. Christians are being persecuted in more places than ever before. But even when we consider what what we consider times of peace and prosperity, there is still sin and death that we must deal with. So where do we find the peace of God? In our own doing? In our own maneuvering? In our own decision making? Here... What we see being declared is that there is peace in Jesus. That's where we find our peace. You can now have peace with God. Because this is what we need most of all. We need peace between man and God, first and foremost. It's all well and dandy to have peace on earth between man and man. But the question is, do we have peace with God? And where do we find this peace? So this is good news for us. Because what Jesus is anointed to do here is to reverse this entire order as it is prophesied in Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. So we see so far from this passage. That Jesus is special. He is unique. He is set apart. He is anointed for a specific task. So thirdly, we see a declaration of who He is. In that prophecy, it says that Jesus was also anointed to bring the good news. He was anointed to bring the Word of God to His people. And God is known to reveal Himself through His Word. And throughout Scripture, Jesus is identified as the Word of God. Which means, everything that comes out of His mouth is the Word of God. And as we see in Revelation, He will have the final Word. 
But where does the word of God in Jesus come from? Well, we know it comes from himself. But also we see here, just as his anointing comes directly from God the Father, this is what is revealed to us here. We see a bond being revealed. A communication between Father and Son. We see the revelation of the Holy Trinity. After the Spirit descends on him, God directly speaks to him in a voice coming from heaven. Throughout the scriptures, there are many who are favored by God. And God speaks to many directly uh, or through an angel. We think of Adam. We think of Abraham, Noah, Moses, and even Mary. But the way he favored them is not the same way exactly the way he favors Jesus. They do not have the same relationship to the Father as does Jesus. In fact, all of these people mentioned served one ultimate purpose. They were all pieces of a puzzle that brought forth Jesus. They were instruments used to bring about this day when Jesus would come and God would make this declaration where he says, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. However way God addressed the prophets of old and those who found favor in his sight, none of them have been addressed this way. We find that many were considered sons of God as an honorable title. At the most, we think of Abel and even the nation of Israel. But when God the Father declares Jesus to be his beloved son, he is setting him apart and speaking of his identity as he shares in the same nature with him. He is his only son. He is speaking of the relationship and the fellowship they had before he was born of of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. And according to his human nature, as we read earlier, he is revealed in prophecy to be be the servant of the Lord, in whom my soul delights, as the Lord says. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. In a royal declaration as to a king. Because many have taught falsely over the years that this is the moment that Jesus became the Son. But we see in Luke's account, that is not true. Because when he was only 12 years old, his parents lost him. And when they found him, they found him in the temple. And after searching for him in great distress, he responds, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Even at 12 years old, he knew who he was as the only son of the father. 
And Jesus would continue to proclaim his unique relationship with the Father. How he has a share in all things with him. All the work that the Father does, he does. He spoke of the secret things that his Father revealed to him. And of the glory that he shared with him before the world existed. Something that we do not have a share in. This, none of the prophets or anyone can claim for themselves because he had a direct communion with the Father. And even he says to his disciples that all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. So this explains why the heavens opened and the Father spoke his word declaring what is true of him already, not what he has become. He did not become the Son of God at this moment. He doesn't become the Son of God here. He is revealed as the Son of God here. He is declared the Son of God before his birth. He is declared the Son of God at the beginning of His ministry. He is declared the Son of God throughout His ministry. He is declared the Son of God at His death on the cross. And He is declared the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. But none of these declarations make Him the Son of God. God declares him to be what he has been from all eternity before the world existed. In fact, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So God the Father says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. This marks the beginning of his ministry as he's being equipped with the Spirit. What is new here is that now he becomes this public figure. And God is well pleased with him in who he was before he does anything. And he is well pleased with him as he will go to the cross for our sins. And he is well pleased to anoint and commission him to preach and to establish the kingdom of God. To restore all that has been lost. He achieves justice for the nations as a non-confrontational and a non-violent Messiah. Who suffers from the worst violence known to man. He is the only perfect an obedient son of the Father. And unfortunately, to many of these Judeans, he will continue to go unnoticed and unrecognized. A light is shining, yet they are blinded and cannot see. As we know, many are today as well. But this just goes to show that it doesn't matter what other people 
say about Jesus. At least for us. It doesn't matter what other people have to say about Jesus. There's always a new opinion about who Jesus is. Whether it is a new television documentary, atheist news reporters or media elites, your teachers, archaeologists, whoever they are. What they say about Jesus at the end of the day doesn't matter. Sorry, it sounds harsh. Because in comparison to this declaration, what matters is what God the Father says about Jesus. Because it is coming directly from Him who has the highest authority. People have no authority no matter their background or their scholarship, in comparison to God. They have none. So whatever people may say about Jesus, if it is contrary to what the Father says here, we can totally disregard it. That's not being intellectually dishonest. That's having truthful thoughts. For he says he is his beloved son with whom he is well pleased. So the question for us is always, do you believe what the father says about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is the beloved Son of the Father. Some people believe that as, as long as we follow moral principles of the Bible and live a good life of peace as Jesus taught us, then we'll be okay in the judgment. God will not judge us for the wrong things we have done, but He will judge us for our good deeds. They believe that you don't necessarily have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But this passage is a clear declaration from God Himself that it is Jesus that is His beloved Son, His only beloved Son, and that it is Jesus in whom He is well pleased with. And get this, He's never said that about you or me. I don't remember a cloud opening up for me and God making this declaration about me. And just as he associates himself with sinners, he calls sinners to associate themselves with him in order to be saved. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. This is why Paul says over and over In his letters, whatever we are, righteous, wise, holy, or all that is pleasing to God, we are what we are as long as we are in Christ. Because we are all baptized into one body in Him. In other words, outside of Christ, we cannot please God. 
Why? Because it is Jesus Christ that God is pleased with. For Him to be pleased with anyone, they must first believe in Jesus as the Son of God, as their Lord and Savior. And get this, though we do not have the same relationship to the Father as Jesus does exactly, but if we believe in Jesus, if we believe in Jesus as the Son, He brings us in to that relationship to the Father. That we have a share and we can now be called sons of God. But we must be in Jesus. It is in the Son, through the Son, and to the Son that we live. Outside of that, God is not pleased with us. And if you reject the Son, you reject the Father. Because all of His works, all of that Jesus came to do and to prove, was so that all may honor the Son, just as, not almost as much, not comparable to, but all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father, meaning absolute devotion and worship. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So the question is, just like throughout all of Scripture, who do you say Jesus is? Because that, all, that makes all the difference in the world. That shapes our entire lives and everything we do. Do we agree with the Father? What is your relationship to the Son? Put all your other relationships on hold, whether to your husband or wife, to your children. Put all of it on hold. Put, put a pause on it for a second and answer that question, what is your relationship to the Son? Is it a loving one? Because that is of eternal importance. And if it is a loving one, if it is, then He dwells with you and He promised to come, with, come to you and make His home with you. And if not, and you say you seek God, there are a lot of seekers of God. I, I hear it a lot. I went back home and I, I've heard a lot of people, yeah, I'm trying, I'm trying to work on my relationship with God. But the question, do you know Jesus? Because if you're seeking God, you must seek Jesus. You will not find God anywhere else. Nowhere else. As the psalmist says, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But then it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. In Jesus, God says to you, he is well pleased with you. For you are covered by the Son. There is no other way to know the love of God than through 
his beloved son. There's no other way for the father to be well pleased with you unless it is through his beloved son. Amen. Let us pray.